0: Now, before we get into it, uh, you need to remember the rules of the day back in those days. If there were two boys who were going to inherit the inheritance, the older boy got the 75% of it. The younger got 25%. If there were more than two, then the older one got 50%. The other ones got 25% and 25%. If there were three or more, the older one always got 50%. The rest of them had to split the rest of it. <clears throat> So we encounter a young man who comes to complain to Jesus about this rule, basically. And he comes to Jesus saying to him, you know, my brother, my brother is dragging his feet. Perhaps he's dragging his feet on this whole conversation. Remember, there are no courts back in those days. So he comes dragging, says, my brother's dragging his feet about all of this. And I need you to do something about it. Now, there are three stories in the biblical narratives where Jesus is uh, invited to triangulate the situation. When someone comes to him asking him for something, but instead it's intended for somebody else. This is one of those stories. The second one is the story of Mary and Martha. You remember the story of Mary and Martha? And the last story is in John's Gospel, which is the woman who was caught in adultery. And in all three of those times, Jesus refuses to participate in the conversation the, triang- the conversation of triangulation. He refuses to get involved in all of that. He's not the, like you see in those court cases on TV. I don't watch that much of it on TV, but every once in a while I watch myself where the judge makes an instant judgment on somebody else. So Jesus refuses to get involved in it. And then because Jesus can see beyond what the eye can see, he can see that this guy is really not talking about justice. Perhaps he's really talking more about covetousness. And he responds to him by saying, take care, be on your guard against all kinds of greeds, for once life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. I think Jesus is very sensitive to our human tendency to elevate something that is not God into God. My sense is that Jesus detects in this younger brother has created an idol, uh, idolatry, if you will. And as you and I both know, that idolatry is looking for something somewhere that should not have the importance that it has. There used to be a group of folks who were called the metaphysical clowns. Carl Valentino was one of those. Charlie Chapin was one of those. And one of the ones that I remember reading is a pantomime which begins with a stage that was bare except for the light, the circle of light in the center of it. And the clown enters that circle and begins to search very diligently for something he has lost. After a time, a policeman comes up and asks, have you lost something? The man responds, the key to my house, if I can't find it, I can't go home. With that, the policeman joins in the search with great intensity And finally the policeman asks the clown, are you sure you lost it here? The clown says, oh no, I lost it over there, pointing to the darkened part of the stage. The policeman says, then why on earth are you looking here? The clown responds, because there's no light over there. Now at a superficial level that seems like a very foolish thing, but I think it's a symbol of human futility. To look for something where it does not exist is the ultimate formula for disappointment. And that is what I think idolatry is. When we find, we find this encounter with this man, Jesus sees something beyond what the eye can see. If you look at this casually, you also would get the impression that Jesus is against all sorts of merit, uh, material possessions. I don't think so. Remember this, Jesus was born into a middle-class family. His father in the Greek word is called a technon, which means that he was a master craftsman. In the level of things in those days, the level of society in those days, there was a military at the very top, then there were some folks below that, and then below that were the master craftsmen. So in Nazareth, his father was a master craftsman. He was, if you will, part of the middle class of those days. We also know that Jesus had a lot of very wealthy friends who hosted him, We also know that when he dies, he has a tunic that is one complete tunic, has no seams in it, which is the tunic a wealthy person would wear. And remember this, that one of his great heroes was the Good Samaritan. And the Good Samaritan had possessions. The Good Samaritan owned some things, and that's why he's able to help the guy on the side of the road. I don't think that Jesus does not consider material things important. I don't think he wishes for all of us to take a vow of poverty. I hope not. I never have. i tell you this, when I came to this country some 55 years ago, we didn't have two nickels to rub together. And I want to tell you something, I don't ever want to go back to the days when I don't have two nickels to rub together. When you don't have two nickels to rub together, all you can worry about is what's going to happen the next day. You can't plan for the future. You can't look into the future. You can't exert yourself. You have no authority over anything. It is not a good way to live our lives. I don't think Jesus ever intended for us not to have material things, except for those who choose to take a vow of poverty. What he does say is that beware of those things. Beware of those things how they capture your heart. How can an individual become a responsible individual if they never have anything to which, for which to be responsible? If you never let people experience ownership of any kind, all they will ever know is infantile dependency. You know, I left a country that became a socialist country and I left it for good reason. Socialism is very good about spreading what's there. It's not very good about creating things. And once everything that is there has already been spread out, there is nothing else to share. And just as the poor should not be left at the mercy of their property, so I tell you the rich should not be left at the mercy of their riches. I think Jesus understood that, but he also know that wealth cannot be everything and I think that's what he sees in this guy a guy who seems to have made all of his focus on the attention of material wealth and then Jesus tells him a parable which you and I know is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning and in this earthly story with a heavenly meaning we encounter a man who comes by his wealth honestly he yielded heavy crops There is no mention of adding to his field. There's no mention of stealing from anybody. So the question then that is raised by the parable is this. Why does Jesus call this man a fool? Why does Jesus call this man a fool? He would be a successful, proud person in our society. I'll give you some things that have come to my mind, some hints about why he is called a fool. The first one is this that our material possessions cannot buy our security. Our material possessions simply cannot buy our full security. As all of us have experienced in this world, as all of us who live in this world and read the newspapers, you and I both know that there is no such thing as full security. It simply does not exist. For those of you who are members of this congregation, you've heard me tell the story. It took place during Les Aspen's funeral here at St. John's Church, about five months after I I arrived here at St. John's Church. And in it, for a week, uh, the people who were gonna be here were gonna be the House of Representatives, of which he had belonged at one point. The the folks who were all the secretaries of of everything were gonna be here. The President was gonna be here. The Vice President was gonna be here. This was a hot place to be one afternoon five months after I arrived here. And what I remember is that the Secret Service was here every day of the week, every day of the week, the dogs were in our church. And they were over in our office, I would be sitting in my office, somebody would knock on the door, he would come, another Secret Service person with another dog checking out to see if I had a bomb in my office. Seven full days of this. Finally, the day of the funeral arrives and in this front pew sitting right here, uh, President Clinton was sitting right there. Vice President Gore was sitting back there. The cabinet sitting behind them. Members of the House of Representatives, People in the ver- Defense Department are sitting behind them. You know, it was a very, very, the, the power people of Washington were all gathered here. So we do what we normally do on Sunday mornings. We enter from the side of the church. The choir comes around, comes over here, sits over where the no- choir normally sits. I went to sit over in the chair where I normally sit. And there was a woman sitting in my chair. A woman that was very nicely dressed with a beige suit, a light blue shirt, and a purse. So I walked up to her while we were singing the hymn, Oh God, Our Help in Ages Past. And I walked up to her and I said to her, You are in my, I whispered, You are in my seat. And the woman says, No problem. I'll sit over here with the choir. So sure enough, she moves over to where the choir is. There was an empty seat over there. And then I notice, I tell you I'm new in Washington, but I know a few things about Washington. One of them is that the Secret Service has a wire coming out of the back of their heads. And then they also wear a button. And I look at this woman, and she has no button, and she has no wire coming out of the back of her head. So the whole time I'm sitting there, I have a prayer book with a hymnal. It's a big, heavy thing. And I'm sitting there for the whole service. Remember, the president's here, the vice president's there. I'm sitting with a book, and I'm thinking, if she reaches into her purse do I whack her with this prayer book? And I say, what if I whack her with this prayer book? And all she's doing is reaching for the Kleenex because she's so sorrow-filled. I thought, can you imagine what the Washington Post would say the next day? New rector of St. John's Church is an abusive person. Well, lo and behold, of course, nothing happens. And at the end of the service, everybody departs, no problem. So I go to the head of the Secret Service detail, and I say to the head of it that day, and I said, so who was that woman that was sitting up there by me and was in my chair? And the Secret Service guy says to me, well, she came to the front door of the church. She told us that she was your assistant, so we let her in. After seven days of full security at this church... This woman was about 20 feet away from the president. There are two things I learned from that story. One of them is, if you have a lot of chutzpah in Washington, you will go a long way. (laughs) The second thing I learned is this. There is no full security in our lives, and our possessions cannot buy them for us. The second thing we know about this is another hint about the story, at least from the perspective from which I read it, is this that money can't buy you love. Remember that old Beatles song? Money can't buy me love, can't buy me love. Great, great hymn, not hymn, song. Maybe for our generation it was a hymn. <laughs> I was watching one of the old channels and there came a rerun of the movie Citizen King. And one of the turning points is when the wife of the rich person announces that she has had enough and she's going to leave him. And the man says, but you can't. And she says, yes, I am going. And out she walks. There he was with his mansion and with the servants. And you learn from the movie, as I think Jesus is hinting to us, that you can't force someone to love you with money, nor can money forestall your death. No matter how much you have, you cannot empower yourself to live together. The third hint that I gather from this parable is this, that this man who has concentrated and built barns and everything is an incredible egotist. If you read this carefully... This is a 61-word soliloquy, and it contains six eyes and six minds. The man has no thought of God or anybody else. He takes all his fruits and his grains as if he could command the sap in the trees and the fertility of the soil, as if he could forestall the faithfulness of the season, causing the rain to fall and the sun to shine. Psalm 4, team, is very clear. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Heedless of God, this man is bereft of any human feeling. He forgets that he didn't plow alone, he didn't reap by himself, and he didn't build his barn single-handedly. He forgot that wealth is more social thing than an individual achievement which I think is so important of the states, I wish every state would do it, would call itself a commonwealth, just like Massachusetts does, and just like Virginia does, just like Kentucky does, and if there are any other, other ones out there, you're going to remind me of which one I missed after the service today, and I'm glad to hear from you. He forgets that wealth is created by all of us. He thinks he's done it all by himself. He's saying to himself, it's all mine. It is I, I, I. It is all my, my, my. It is all egocentrism run amok. The man, the man, because he thinks so highly of himself, has forgot about any sense of gratitude. There is much for which we can be genuinely astonished and immeasurably grateful when the beauty of life is your home. I think the rich fool in our parable missed that point entirely. His foolishness lay in his superficiality, his egoism, his self-centeredness, his lack of self-awareness, and his lack of gratitude. And the last item which I suggest to you from this particular parable for your consideration is this. This man knew nothing about generosity. Now relax. I'm not going to ask you to sign a pledge card for St. John's Church. This is where normally we go. I'm not going to ask you for money for our capital campaign. We've already asked you for that, and you have given generously to our capital campaign. So relax. But remember this. Creation is at bottom an act of generosity, an act of God's generosity. It is God sharing who God is and what God has with the rest of us. And if we are created in the image of God, I think that then we are created to be generous human beings. And the man in the parable misses that point by 180 degrees. I've said this to a congregation a million times, so I'll offer it to you who are visiting today. If you can't give some of your money away, you need to examine where you are in terms of your sense of generosity. If you don't want to give it to St. John's Church, don't give it to St. John's Church, but I want to tell you, give it to somebody. Give it to somebody who you think is doing God's work for your sake, if not for anybody else's. Our money is a, money is a very, very powerful instrument, and the only way that we will ever know if we have power over that powerful instrument is if we can give some of it away to make sure that other people have, and more than anything else, to remember that the act of creation is an act of God's generosity. And in the image of God, we are created to be generous. There's a lot of the story of heaven and earth in this particular story of the rich young fool. Money can't buy security, can't buy love, It can't buy gratitude. It can't buy generosity. But Jesus offers us as a warning, as a warning for all of us, to examine our lives in this earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Amen.